Section 1 of G. K. Chesterton in the British Review. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Larry Wilson. G. K. Chesterton in the British Review by G. K. Chesterton. The True Failure of the Turk that huge and hundredfold pressure of popular speech and legend which is behind us all has nowadays to break through narrower and more oligarchic channels than perhaps ever before but it is still the best guide to good sense proverbs are nearly always more true than they look no man for instance until he has a dog of his own knows how true are the old phrases about a dog in the manger or let sleeping dogs lie but the echo of such ancient popular phrases is especially valuable in the case of ancient words whose meaning is now disputed, such as the word Christian. We know that Nietzsche said there was only one Christian and he was crucified, and some of the higher critics seem to have little with which to improve on it, except by suggesting that perhaps he wasn't. The situation really turns the Christians into a new sect with new dogmas hitherto unknown to christendom in about half of the british press to-day the word christian clearly has a sense quite vivid to those who so use it but which those with other sympathies could only translate as something between cosmopolitan and meliorist with a touch of quaker it is almost taken for granted that it was a water-drinker who turned water into wine and an enemy of all smiting who smote on the very steps of the temple now, if turning from the use of the word by aristocrats like Tolstoy, or capitalists like Quakers, we ask ourselves how the word Christian is used by old tradition among applewomen or charwomen, or draymen or dustmen, we shall find something that would surprise the eccentrics very much. We shall find the democracy using the word Christian in a sense which we can only say is something between sane and civilized. Where can I get Christian food? or when i get among christian folk are common in all the old popular talk and tales in no way concerned with religion there was indeed in all christianity an element of the democratic but in this aspect it was not individualistic nor even revolutionary it was rather a feeling of a sort of respectful egalitarianism that everybody ought to treat himself like everyone else and not have the impudence to love himself otherwise than as he loved his neighbor. Shakespeare has been called anti-democratic, because, like nearly all the European poets of all ages, he did one or two rhetorical exercises on the old theme of Odi Profanum. But the conversations of his clowns contain some of the most vivid traces of the wit and vitality of the popular Christian tradition. And insofar as it was a tradition of equality, it was faultlessly phrased by the gravedigger, and the more a pity that great folk should have countenance in this world to drown or hang themselves more than their even Christian. I do not think it was quite accidental that Shakespeare put in that grim qualification in this world, but the broad fact is that the word Christian is generally used by the populace in a sense even more apparently remote from religious definition than this, and commonly signifies that which is human normal social and self-respecting thus the modern idealist having put away war and wine 
will wear peasant clothes in imitation of Tolstoy, and part his hair in imitation of Christ, and walk shining with Christian democracy. And the democracy will look at him and say, Why can't he dress like a Christian? Now, just as I believe in putting this sort of preliminary popular test to the significance of the Christian, I should put a similar preliminary popular test to the significance of the word Turk. What does common language in quotation suggest that our fathers felt about a Turk? In the same sense that they felt Christian to mean the civilization in which they were equally recognized and were at home. If you had said to any fairly typical Englishman at the time, from Robin Hood to Thomas Hood, I want to introduce you to a Turk. What would have been the image in his mind? Or how far can the outlines of such an image be faintly traced from words that are really widely scattered among men? It is clear, I think, that the first note was struck right the identification of the people with their faith. I might rest this on the old ballads in which the Turkish knight is represented as worshipping Mahound, with a rabid regularity and consistency by no means emerging so clearly in the Christianity of his opponent. In some of the longer ballad epics of the Dark Ages, I think Mahound melted into a combination of Apollo and Apollyon, calculated to make the mythological brain reel. But all these popular errors are no longer popular. A better instance can be found in the passage in the English prayer book, where the name Mahomet occurs in none of its forms, not even the emancipated will be annoyed to hear in the calendar of saints, but where strictly spiritual airs are summed up under the heads of Jews, Turks, infidels, and heretics. In cold theology, I conceive all could have been covered by saying infidels and heretics, but two of the most powerful and picturesque realities this world has ever seen forced themselves like wedges between the other words of the sentence. The Jews were the absorbing problem inside Christendom. The Turks were the absorbing problem outside Christendom. The first problem was economic. The second was military. But it is most certainly a tribute to two great religions that they had to be specially mentioned in a definition which would, logically speaking, have covered them completely. This at least is clear about our fathers when they talked about Turks. They knew there was another great religion in the world. The next idea about the Turk that emerges everywhere in popular expression is the idea of his despotism. The 18th century contained many crowned heads in Europe who were absolute in every apparent sense. Many of them were absolute in an absolute sense. I mean that awful sense that the king denies all invisible power above him, as well as all visible power below. The atheist emperor of Austria, the atheist empress of Russia, the atheist king of Prussia, were all sovereigns who, in the most literal and logical sense of the words, neither feared God nor regarded man. They believed in undivine right, which sits on a higher throne than divine right. And yet, throughout this period of rationalist autocracy, we have abundance of proof that the Turk was felt to be absolute and irresponsible in a sense utterly beyond the European phrase, like, as despotic as the Grand Turk, or we might as well be living under the Grand Turk, are thickly scattered over the whole of that period when Europe itself was ruled by all that Europeans have ever experienced as despotism. Right or wrong, the popular idea, plainly, was that in the West the rulers could make a scourge out of wild and woodland rods, but that you had to live in the East to make the whip out of scorpions. 
there went along with this in popular language a strong impression that the turk was not fierce but ferocious frenchmen scotchmen spaniards irishmen were all very fierce on occasion even englishmen were fierce on occasion but through a thousand legends and links of tradition there lingers the idea that the turk was really terrible and atrocious the more flippant the examples the more obvious it is that the mind was full of the fact when it says in that splendid ballad of sally in our alley my master comes like any turk and bangs me most severely it is quite clear that the balladist attributed to the turk a disproportion in the habit of human banging quite beyond the christian limits of that duty or pleasure and when thomas hood perhaps a hundred years after instinctively uses the phrase an o to be a slave along with the barbarous turk he concedes the main point which is the barbarism broadly our fathers certainly felt the turk as something destructive obstreperous and unmanageable indeed nurses used to talk about young turks long before the phrase began to be used as a description of aged jews i do not profess at this point to have proved anything except that a certain suspicion of one society was very widely distributed through another and crops up after centuries in the strangest way that suspicion was doubtless one-sided but it was not sectional the east was east and the west was west but it was the whole democracy of the west one half of the world did not know how the other half lived but the half was a whole half and the impression left upon thousands of millions rich and poor seems to have roughly amounted to these three things that a turk was a man with a strange religion that a turk was arbitrary beyond the common sin of kings and that a turk was uncivilized that is as much of the popular tradition as we can get and i incline to think that it is as much of the truth as we can get in short i would propose to maintain the following very unfashionable opinions first that the turk has ultimately failed because his religion is false second that he has failed because his politics were imperial and third that he has failed because imperialism is not only in its nature uncivilized but in its nature uncivilizable the great powers the great newspapers the great capitalists who can control both who can control everything on earth except a man with moderate courage have been talking for some time past about the carnage in the balkans they are rather inclined to take up the argument that as much blood has been shed by servians fighting bulgars as was shed by turks massacring armenians the fundamental answer is that bloodshed has not been the crime of the turk nay if anything it has been his plea in mitigation there is an equally fundamental answer for any one with a sense of dignity and delicacy that the most bestial battle is mutual while the mildest massacre is not mutual but the vital matter is the mistake about the true failure of turkey the turks were always courageous and cruel and it is in no sense outside experimental human psychology that their rivals should sometimes be equally cruel now they have had the sense to be equally courageous the existence of courage gives us no reason at root for retaining the turk the existence of cruelty gives us no reason at root for deserting either the bulgar or the serb the whole difference lies much deeper and whether the modern world likes it or not it is a difference of religion the christian enthusiasts who said mohammed was antichrist were not narrow or irrational 
nor were they doing the great prophet any moral wrong. It was always a part of the true legend of Antichrist that he should shine with all the heathen virtues, and especially the most austere ones. But the vital aspect in which Mahomet may really be taken as a sort of type of Antichrist is this, that his whole faith is founded on a furious denial of the idea of incarnation. This is the key to the Turk everywhere and in everything. For this reason he goes to war with statues and slays them like living foes. For this reason, with all his early culture in mathematics and medicine, he would sometimes, like the Caliph Omar, fly into a mystical passion and utter in flame his fury even against books. For this reason, he will have no human or animal form in his most ornate and instructed designs. The flames that wreathed themselves roaring around the library of Alexandria only spoke aloud the same word of woe and denunciation which is said as clearly by the arabesques and traceries that read themselves in silence on any quiet curtain or sunny wall. The thing that is really at the back of all Turkey's massacres can be seen by staring at a Turkey carpet. It is this, again, that makes the literature of such civilizations so much better in a decorative sense than it is in a realistic sense. The Arabian Nights is probably the best novel in the world, if we are asking for stories. It is probably the worst novel in the world, if we are asking for people. The whole of those thousand and one nights might almost have been read by Scheherazade from the complex yet featureless scrap of carpet on which she sat to tell them. The faces of the heartless princesses and the veiled incalculable kings were like the half-human faces the eye can find in a wallpaper. The whole masterpiece is like a masterpiece of oriental embroidery, glorious with all God's colors, intricate with all man's crafts, as melodious as music, as strategic as chess, and as inhuman as the howling deserts out of which its spirit came. Lastly, it is this that has prevented the Turk from being a ruler as well as a conqueror of men. It is this much more than his cruelties, that which he would call his hatred of idolatry, that which I call his horror and fear of incarnation forbids him to fix even his lesser affections frequently upon sacred images, sacred arts, sacred individuals. Of necessity, therefore, it makes him colder than other men to the idea of sacred stones and of sacred soils. Hence his grasp has always slipped on the great fundamental fact of all political order or fellowship, and the rational root of government. For that fundamental fact is land the good red earth of which we men were made. The true comparison between the Turks and, let us say, the Servians, is not to be found by counting heads when they are broken or noses when they are cut off, especially among armed populaces inflamed by centuries of shame and terror. The fundamental fact, to start with, is that the Servians care about Servia. The Turk does not care about Turkey. At the most, he cares about being a Turk. And even that, of course, can be more correctly stated by saying that he cares about being a Moslem or true believer. The quarrel is incurably a religious one, not only because his creed differs from our creed, but because he differs from us in having nothing else but a creed. It is the essence of the incarnation idea that it believes in relics, in bodily and materialistic modes of grace, and among others the mode of locality and landscape. It is not a mere coincidence that the Crusades, 
the revolutions against Islam, which shook but never broke it, were not merely for the imposition of a system, but for the recovery of a site. The sense of the sanctity of the land was crystallized in the conception of a holy land, and this sense of the local genius and the local shrine shines through all the shifting ambitions of the Middle Ages, and softens the stranger's usurpations with a certain magic of nationality. Charlemagne was a Frenchman before there was any France. A hundred German professors have died in agonies, trying to get us all to call him Karl. Alfred would not or could not make Wessex England, but he made Wessex English. Robert Bruce was not in the modern sense a Scotchman at all, but though he was not a Scotchman, he was a Scotch patriot. He felt in his big bones all those generations of narrow and noble nationalists who were to brag of his name. William the Conqueror slipped often enough in the slime and blood of the earlier and more brutal Middle Ages as he slipped on the shore of Sussex when he landed from his ship. But he had this instinct of this sacrament of the soil, for he arose with his hands full of earth, and said that it was his land. That is why his monarchy struck root as an English oak and in a little time had forgotten France. But when the Turk has re-arisen in his many splendid resurrections, there never was anything that stuck to his hands but blood. Doubtless all such generalizations are subject to exceptions, but to those slender exceptions which really prove the rule. No part of humanity is wholly inhuman on any point, even a point in which it does not specialize. There are Jewish prize-fighters. There are Prussian humorists. There are English rebels. The Moslem civilizations yield here and there to the human temptation of having holy cities and special places for prayer. But it is not, as compared with other religions, the special character of the religion. The religion, as a religion, is rather one which drives men forth to newer and newer lands, so that nation after nation flies back behind their horse hoofs. The wonderful work they have done in history has always been a work of external conquest, never a work of reconstruction or return. In moments wholly devoted to religion, which is itself a desire for the home of the human heart, in sacred matters such as death, the Moslem remembered, as all men remember, the things from which he came. But this never altered the external nature of his imperial and insatiable policy. His dead face was turned dutifully towards Mecca, but his face alive was always turned towards Vienna. I suppose it is a mere fancy to observe that the bird called the eagle is the symbol of imperialism. But in spite of the just and splendid associations of that symbol, I cannot prevent myself from having a secret pleasure in the fact that there never has been an eagle on the English shield. Leopards or lions, for there seem to be some dispute about which they are, at least walk about like men and cattle and therefore must have some vague environment which may loosely be called their country. But the eagle can claim only two things, a barren crag and the whole world. I do not want either of them. Islam reminds me very much of an eagle. At its best it is free and proud in the purity of the heavens. At its worst it is a thief and a robber and a murderer from the beginning. But whether in good or evil, the eagle knows nothing of the earth. So the Turk knows nothing of the earth. He knows no more of the land on which he descends than one of the earliest balloonists. He fails in the first talent of a successful invader. He cannot let himself be conquered by a conquered country. 
he can be of no use in a farmyard, because eagles lay no eggs that are useful to anybody but themselves. The Turks cannot put the eagle on their flag, because of the veto on all animal form of which I have spoken. But not being allowed the hooked-beaked bird that rides the heavens, they have chosen the moon that rides the heavens, at its very sharpest and hookiest. But I always thought of Turkish rule as a still swarm of predatory birds spread over a whole landscape and so still that they might be mistaken for the leaves on the trees. But they will vanish, and the trees will remain. In short, the Turk is nomadic in the true sense, not so much in going everywhere as in coming from nowhere. He had to have an empire because he had not got a country. And in this respect his imperialism has failed so as to be a warning to all imperialism. The vital error in imperialism is this, that it cannot make up its mind between two inconsistent ideas, the solidification of a nationality and the triumph of an imperial people. The ancient Romans made the Gauls Roman citizens. The more modern Americans made the African American slaves. But an empire always attempts to fuse the conquered man and still make him feel inferior, to ask him to die for a nationality he may not claim. We have made this mistake in its most ghastly form in ireland the french republic may have told the breton to leave off being a breton but it told him to be and call himself a frenchman we have told the irishman to leave off being an irishman but we never had the moral courage to let him call himself an englishman as matters stood for something like two hundred years the irishman was a liar when he called himself english and a traitor when he called himself irish the central sin and weakness of imperialism is not making everybody alike, spreading a flat and vulgar similarity, as in the first and the most instinctive criticism of it. The sin and weakness of imperialism is that the imperialist seeks to spread the similarity to others, and yet retain the superiority to himself, and it weakens in the most inmost parts, as do all things that go against the reason in God and man. This is, of course, exhibited in the gigantic parody of imperialism by which we have been warned in the Turk. He wanted all his subject peoples to belong to him altogether. He had not the slightest aspiration to belong to them at all. He wanted to wear the great black mountain like an eastern cap, and the great Greek islands like the fringe of an eastern robe. But he wanted every one to remember that the body is more than raiment, and the Turk more than his subjects. He was so satisfied with being a Turk that he never made any turkey. When, in his heroic retreat, he barred himself behind the gates of Constantinople, he had taken refuge in a foreign city. For the imperialist is an alien everywhere. Cursed is he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. Cursed because he removes his own. And thirdly, the root of error of all such imperialism lies in the fact that Hood and a hundred Christian writers earlier had caught, that the Turk, good or bad, is to this day the barbarous Turk. He had the blind, unbroken, one-sided vanity of the savage or the spoilt child. Cedar of Lebanon, that God hath not broken, as Matthew Arnold's hero said of a similar oligarch. At the bottom of all such superior, and, as I should say, satanic visions of empire, there is an idea that it is babyish and half-witted, which I can only call the non-reciprocal idea. I kill you, but you do not kill me. Your property is mine, because all goods are held in common. 
My property is not yours, because my father gave it me. Whenever you smell the savor and presence of that position, you are justified quite literally in calling it half-witted, for it is really using only one lobe of the brain. It is really reading only the one half of the equation. It produces on a civilized and responsible mind much the same effect that is produced by listening to a friend talking on the telephone. It brutally bisects the human brain, and it is because all pride reposes on that loss of reciprocity, and I do not care whether you call it equality or not, that pride is a mental weakness. It is because all imperialism reposes on pride, that imperialism is a national weakness. It does not matter much whether a nation is large or small, so long as its citizens are citizens of the same size, and the nation has some boundaries as somewhere. I think it is an injustice to the Turks to call them unprogressive. I think they have always believed in progress, especially progress westwards. I think they have always sought progress, their own progress. Their very symbol is a symbol of progress, the crescent, the growing thing. But they swore by the moon, the inconstant moon, and the waxing crescent did what progressive things always do. It waned. G. K. Chesterton End of Section 1